Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Still here in the drivehubler.com studio. Happy Juneteenth, everyone. I'm enjoying myself alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. Obviously, there's a lot that uh, goes into the show. One of the biggest topics every week until the you know the world ends, I feel like, in Indianapolis, <laughs> or at least for the next few years, is Anthony Richardson. And so before we dive more into him, I guess I'll ask you, Jimmy, when it comes to what you saw from Gardner Minshew, maybe his support of him, were you surprised at all just to see him be that supportive, that outwardly supportive? I don't know if we've seen that in the NFL. I was taken aback by it initially because it's so easy in quarterback competitions when there's a dynamic of a, if you want to call him that, because he's not a long-term veteran, but he has been in the league a number of seasons in Gardner Minshew that still feels like he can be a starter in the National Football League, that feels like he's had brief windows of opportunity that have either escaped him or they've found somebody of slightly higher caliber to put in front of him at his numerous spots throughout the NFL. And then you find a good marriage at this point from a guy in Shane Steichen that he had a nice connection with last year in Philadelphia. And you think to yourself, okay, maybe this is his landing spot, at least as a bridge quarterback for a year. But with the understanding, and he's made jokes about this as well, that they had a fourth yeah, a fourth pick in the draft, right? And they had an opportunity to change course of the franchise and take a franchise QB. He was aware of that from the get-go. And when you have that awareness, it's your choice as a player to decide how the next six months are going to go. Are you going to be self-centered, focused on yourself, potentially getting what you want at all costs, but also potentially causing rifts within a team that doesn't need that right now? Or are you going to fight for your job and fight for the starting position the right way while also being a sense of a coworker with the same goals in mind as the rookie quarterback that's going to look up to you in some regard for, hey, you've been in the league a while. What's this whole thing like? And he chose the latter. And so it, it surprised me initially because it's so easy particularly in today's NFL, to be like, I forget you. I don't have a responsibility to go and mentor you. I'm going to do my own thing. Versus, we're still going to compete, we're going to battle, but it's not going to be personal, and we're going to help each other and support each other, regardless of who ends up as the week one starter. I mean, he's a better man than most, because I would be like, man, get this buff dude up out of here. (laughs) I'm going to show him what's up. And maybe I'm not you know, delusional, obviously, about why he was brought in here, but I usually just don't see that amount of cheerleading for a guy who you know is going to play ahead of you if he does really well. From both of them. Exactly. And so we got my guy George Brimmer on the line here. He covers the Colts for the Herald Bulletin. He's also the sports editor there. We bond a lot about preps and how much it matters to still have local coverage of your high schools and things like that. So, George, happy to have you here on Juneteenth. How are you doing? Doing well. Happy to be here. All right. George, we were just talking about Gardner Minshew, Anthony Richardson, that dynamic. You've been around the NFL. Have you ever seen a quarterback competition sort of manifest itself the way these two have where it comes to just the camaraderie, the bond, and really it seems like genuine love for the other guy to succeed despite knowing that at some point one of you guys are going to have to take a back seat? Yeah, and I haven't seen anything uh, even remotely like this. I mean, we, we've seen quarterbacks that got along, but it was always really defined roles. You know, like Andrew Luck and Matt Hasselbeck had a really good relationship, but Hasselbeck was towards the end of his career. He was here to be a mentor, uh, and it, it, there was no – there was no question who was going to start, you know, every week as long as Andrew Luck was healthy. This has been completely, you know, new. Uh, when you When you see – the way that Minshew genuinely is the first person to celebrate just about anything Richardson does on the field. And then, you know, their interactions in between 
drills. You're out there, you know, every bit as much as I am. They're constantly high-fiving, shaking hands, you know, doing some sort of little celebration. It's it's too much to be an act, you know. It, it <laughs> happens every minute of practice almost. So, But I think a lot of that comes back to Minshew's personality, honestly. You know, I think he's a guy that uh, is very laid back in, in, in the sense of what he wants for himself. You know, I think he he's very comfortable in who he is. He's very comfortable in whichever role he has. But he's also – he just seems like a guy who legitimately wants the team to do well and whatever that means. So if that means he's under center and he gets a chance to go out there and lead the team, it's fine with that. If it means Anthony Richardson's going to be the guy, then he's going to support him to the fullest too. And I think he sets the tone and it makes that quarterback room the way it is. George, how much of the decision to bring Gardner Minshew in here and the idea that he would be able to carry himself in that way was the result of the relationship that Shane Steichen was able to cultivate with him last year in Philadelphia? Now, you got to figure that's a big part of it. I mean, obviously, Steichen knows him well, you know, up close and personal with him, knew what kind of personality he was bringing in, knew the way probably he would react to these things. And to some degree, they, they probably had an idea of how the relationship would work because Minshew and Richardson had been you know, with the same trainer out there in Jacksonville. I'm sure, you know, in the, in the run-up to the draft, they talked to Gardner about him and probably found out then what a big fan he was and, and knew that this would be a situation that would probably turn out the way it has so far. George, when you look at the way this wide receiver room, tight end room, was sort of depleted throughout OTAs and minicamp, what were you able to glean from that? Was there anything you took away from that, or was it just a matter of, man, like, can these guys get healthy so we see what it's supposed to look like in training camp? I think definitely the latter. I think the upshot of it is, you know, a lot of times that happens during the season. You end up at some point or another having having guys on that 53-man uh, or, you know, on the game day roster that, that you weren't expecting to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at least it's it's way back this time of year, so I don't think it's going to be hugely useful, but there's going to be at least a little bit of history between whoever the quarterback is and those guys because they did get some, you know, lengthy reps during this OTA period together. But it, it made it really hard, really the offense as a whole, because – even we were talking about it out there, you know, on the practice field a few times. Mm-hmm. Other than the offensive line, there wasn't a big deal, a, a, a huge difference between being taking first team reps and taking second team reps because they were pretty much thrown to the same receivers just because there weren't that many. You know, it wasn't like you had Michael Pittman on one side and then, you know, way down on the other end of the, the spectrum on the other. It was pretty much the same group. And really, the offensive line at this time of year it doesn't really matter much which offensive line you're playing behind because the defense can't touch the quarterback anyway. So it just felt like it was really hard to get any kind of sense of, okay, where's this offense at? It is this time of year anyway because you're in shorts and it's not anywhere near like real football. But the fact that you just had so many guys out and then Jonathan Taylor too. So you know, really the entire skill position set. It, it just it wasn't anywhere near what we'll even see, I would imagine, at the end of next month when they get to training camp in Westfield. George Bremer with us. Covers the Colts of the beat writer and sports editor for the Herald Bulletin. George, you mentioned how the tides will change once things shift to Westfield for training camp. And as you've looked at the beat over the years compared to this particular season, does it feel like there's more uncertainty because of those missing pieces on offense that add to the drama or intrigue around this quarterback competition than in years past? Yeah, well, just the quarterback competition in and sure, of itself. In itself, I mean, yeah. yeah. It, it, just ha- I can't remember the last time there was a legitimate competition to be the number one quarterback. I mean, you had situations like when Carson Wentz went down and now you're going to have – Jacob Eason and, and Sam Ellinger competing for the potential to, to play until they got back. But I can't remember the last time they went to training camp and didn't know who was going to start week one. And it was, it, 
with the idea that that player would be the quarterback the entire season. And it wasn't injury related. Uh, but then on top of that, when you throw in the fact that, you know, they, they haven't had the first team offense even close to together on the field yet. And the fact that they've got a first year head coach who's installing a new system. Uh, it's, I think the level of uncertainty here is as high as it's been. I've been around the team for training camp at least since 2010. And I can't remember more mystery, more intrigue going into a camp than this year. And I think it's going to, I think it's going to lead to some really interesting stories. I think it's going to make it fun for, for James and I and everybody else out there uh, because there's going to be a lot of competition, a lot of different positions, and there should be an awful lot to write about. George, one interesting story that we're going to see play out in real time is Jonathan Taylor and his extension and when and if he gets it. So what was your reaction to him sort of taking a stand last week to say his piece and and argue for his value? I was surprised. Um, First of all, we don't really get a lot of peeks into him, uh, you know, beyond the football field very often. Jonathan's always very polished, always very friendly. It's not like he doesn't want to be with the media, but he's not a guy that usually is going to say very much detailed. You know, it's, mm-hmm. the, it's usually generalities. It, it's uh, first time we got him this spring. He was talking about the contract and it was, oh, my agent will will we'll handle this, and I don't even know what I'm getting into, and it's going to be so much fun to to see this from the inside and be a part of this whole process. And this time around, for him to come out. And basically say, yes, running back position is undervalued in the league, which is obvious. I mean, it's not like he's acknowledging something that, that, that is shocking. Uh, but then to also say he wants to be here uh, and he just hopes the Colts see the value in him that, that he believes he has, uh, I think probably the most powerful point he made, at least from an argumentative standpoint, was pointing out that you know the, under this regime, the guys that have sort of been the leaders on the field and off the field, they've all gotten taken care of. And I think that's where he feels like he belongs in that mix. It's co- I think it's complicated on both sides. I mean, the Colts, obviously there's risk in giving a long-term field to a running back. From the Colts side, from Taylor's side, I think I do is look at Marlon Mack and then the situation he went through during Taylor's rookie year. On the cusp of, you know, a big free agent deal, coming off a 1,000-yard season, tears out Achilles tendon in the first half of the first game, and he's played 14 games since. It For running backs, there's a lot of risk as well. So I think it's a complicated situation. It does sound like both sides are motivated. But, yeah, between now and training camp, uh, that will be the most interesting story not related to suspensions that, that, that we could possibly see unfold. George, how difficult is this balancing act for the Colts front office? Because I agree on one hand with Taylor's point that running backs are are underpaid, but I don't think it's as drastic as those that play the position feel when you look at the NFL, maybe not quite to the degree the NBA has from the traditional big man, but they've moved away from the market valuing running backs, particularly one like Jonathan Taylor that is not a Christian McCaffrey or an Austin Eckler that has that pass-catching dynamic. They're not willing to send that type of money to that position anymore because that's not the way that it's utilized for championship teams outside of the Titans making that run of the AFC Championship game a couple years ago with Derrick Henry. So when you factor all that in there, how does the front office not get caught up with I get it. You want to take care of everybody, and Jonathan Taylor's right. They have taken care of everybody in the past, but this is a different animal even with the rookie contract, knowing that if you go too long for too much money, you're putting yourself in a really tough spot three, four, five years down the line. Yeah, that's a huge part of what makes this so complicated all the way around. I mean, uh, just look at the Super Bowl last year. Philadelphia was running back by committee. Uh, Jalen Hurts was probably the most – he was probably the guy that, that concerned defenses the most in that run game. Uh, and then on the other side with the Chiefs who win the Super Bowl, you have a rookie. Uh, I think a seventh round. Rookie. Seventh round pick of Pacheco. Yep, yep. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like either one of those teams w- was riding a, a bell cow running back. In. And you know this is a copycat league. Everybody's watching what the teams that win do. And, it, and that's not new. It's not like that's something that just cropped up last year. Uh, and then on top of that, you look at the guys who have gotten deals. You know, Ezekiel Elliott didn't see the end of his contract with the Cowboys. Uh, Dalvin Cook just got released. 
Saquon Barkley hasn't gotten a deal because the situation is very similar there in, in New York. Uh, you know, he's under that franchise tag right now, and he feels like that's kind of disrespectful to him at the moment. Uh, he wants that long-term deal, and the Giants, I think, are going through those same things you were just talking about. You give him a long-term deal, you know, you see these five-year deals being signed, and then two or three years left on them, teams are moving on. I think that's a huge part of, of what complicates this whole factor. Offenses – are evolving the running back the traditional running back the, the feature guy is just not uh, as big a part of, of the nfl today as he was even probably seven or eight years ago and it's not like the distant past when they were still using this a little bit more now it's tennessee you know it's probably the prime example after that it's hard to come up with another team that really leans on that guy other than the Colts in 2021 when Jonathan Taylor had the 1,800-yard season and, and really the offense all went through him. But I also think it's, it complicates those negotiations because of what you just said. The highest-paid running back in the league right now is Christian McCaffrey, and that's because of his utility in the pass game. So where is Taylor's value as a traditional bell cow running back? Probably hard to really pin that, especially with you know landscape of the rest of the league where guys like Dalvin Cook are getting released and guys like Saquon Barkley are being asked to play on the franchise tag. George, you mentioned that this is a copycat league, and I think that's an interesting point that you made because in a few weeks we will see a joint training camp practice between the Colts and the Bears and the Colts and Philadelphia. You know, they have quarterbacks with similar skill sets to Anthony Richardson. How beneficial do you think it'll be for him to see – Obviously, someone who I believe is on the rise with Justin Fields, and then I, and on the flip side, the standard in the NFL when it comes to Jalen Hurts and what they do in Philadelphia, considering, again, that they have similar skill sets, and I would guess that the Colts want to see him take a sort of similar trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at those two guys, uh, and I think they're both, you know, as you said, playing style-wise. Uh, physically, they're they're very similar to to what the Colts are hoping uh, Anthony Richardson will become in the NFL. It's going to be tough for him if they set it up the way they they have in the past to do much as far as visually with, with this because he'll be on a different field, uh, you know, than they are. He might have a little bit of a chance to kind of glance down there and and especially with Hurts, you know, kind of take a peek at, at what's going on uh, with a guy who led his team to the Super Bowl. The Eagles are again going to be very near the top of the league and clearly running a very similar, if not the same, offense uh, in Philadelphia that they'll be running here in, in Indy. But I think maybe the biggest benefit is, you know, if he's able to have some conversations with these guys either between practices or, you know, just in some downtime moments uh, with, I think, in Fields' case, I think it would be interesting if, if Richardson can pick his brain a little bit about how his rookie year went. Things didn't go well for him in Chicago. He got hurt for t- part of that time. He was behind Andy Dalton. You know, it took a long time to get on the field. When he did, he struggled. Uh, but he was able to come back, play well enough last year that there's a lot of momentum coming into this year. And people feel like he's taking another step there in Chicago this year. Uh, so I think that that journey is something that Anthony can learn a lot from. And then obviously on Hertz's side, just coming up with Shane Steichen, uh, with you know, expectations being really huge on his shoulders this year and a little bit last year as well, uh, but playing in the system, playing, you know, the exact position he's going to play. I just think there's a lot of things, details that could be gleaned there by Anthony Richardson if they get the chance to have some conversations while this is all going down. I know you mentioned they'll be on different fields, obviously, but the flip side to that is we're going to see live reps, and I think that that's one of the things that we've uh, – all harped on when it comes to the beat is how much can you get Anthony Richardson put into scenarios where he has to get more reps and and so do you think that the joint practices will allow for him to face just more situations he hasn't seen coming into an NFL career having just played 13 college games as a starter oh absolutely and I think the great thing about that from a team standpoint is it's scripted so you can make sure he's getting the exact situation you want. There's something in particular like the red zone that he's struggling with. Then you can make sure that that's the highlight, you know, of an entire period here. You don't have to worry in preseason games. What will you get into the red zone and, and how many times and how many situations 
you know, how many snaps is he actually going to take. You can make that number as long as the other team agrees with you uh, and they're willing to do it. You can make that number whatever you want, and you can blow the whistle early. You know, he's still – it's going to be live reps in the sense that he's going to be looking at a new defense. Uh, I'm sure they're going to have the pads on those two days, so it's going to be much more physical and much closer to real football than what we've seen so far. Uh, but also, they're still not going to be taking the quarterback to the ground. You know, so it, it, you, you kind of eliminate or at least lessen that risk of injury to him, uh, and you get a ton of looks. You know, the, the amount of snaps he gets in those three practices, the two with the Bears and the one with the Eagles, is are going to be probably more than all the preseason games combined, which for a rookie whose number one thing is experience, I can't think of anything more valuable than that. George, Jonathan Taylor mentioned this when he met with the media, that there's a history of this franchise taking care of their own, and he's not wrong on that. It's well documented. But when you look at where the dynamics are at place of trying to have this balancing act of keeping everybody happy, getting everybody fed, while also focusing on the task at hand, which is big decisions at quarterback and trying to build this thing up in the next couple of years. What if it all changes if the Colts stay true to that trend and they pay somebody around training camp or just before the start of the regular season or the start of the preseason, but it's Grover Stewart or it's Michael Pittman Jr.? How does that change the dynamics of things? Because you're right, John Taylor doesn't seem angry during these conversations, but he's being more talkative about it than he was when he said he was going to let his agent take care of everything. Yeah, he's already tone, changed his tone from what March or, or whenever we got him the first time, and until so now, uh, there's no question. I think the longer this goes, the the more that risk comes into play. And I think the other thing that's going to be really interesting in this whole scenario is how important he ends up being in Shane Steichen's scheme of things, but how important they feel he is to Anthony Richardson. And you had the owner on draft day talking about this combo and, and what they can do. Uh, Taylor's still only 24, which I think is one thing that's different here than, than some of the other uh, situations around the league. Barkley's 26, Dalvin Cook's 27. You know, you might feel that you can get three more years from him. I don't know. He's got a lot of wear and tear in Wisconsin as well. Uh, again, this is so incredibly complicated on so many levels. But I think another element of that to, to your question is if he's a guy – that you feel like is really helping the development of Anthony Richardson and he's coming along and, you know, those two, in some ways, a running back could be Richardson's best friend right now as he's trying to figure things out, get comfortable in this league, and you don't re-sign him after this year. Are you stunting the growth of, of the most important guy in the franchise right now? I think there's so many things here. And if it plays out the way you just mentioned, where you maybe you do give Grover Stewart an extension or give Michael Pittman an extension, and now you've got, even if it's not a disgruntled Jonathan Taylor, you just have a disappointed Jonathan Taylor. Does that affect the way that he can help develop the quarterback this year? I, there's so many levels to that situation, and I think it's something that is going to, you know, it's going to play out throughout the rest of this preseason. It's a huge situation that, that probably isn't getting as much attention as, as maybe it should because of all the other things that are going on with the team right now. George, you had a notebook you put out recently. The lead of it was Dallas Flowers, his opportunity he has in front of him. You've been around him just like I have. He exudes confidence. What do you think of the his ability to maybe fill in? I know we talked a lot about Julius Brents, Darius Rush, and what we could expect from those guys when they get healthy and on the field. But it seems like he may have been the forgotten guy who got a little taste of it last year. And obviously, based off of what you know, I read in your story and, and what I just know about him personally, isn't you know all too all that excited to just give it up just just yet? He seems like he wants more out of this. Yeah, he's definitely a really confident kid. Um, you know, I think he's he's his background is similar to Anthony Richardson in the sense that no one questions the athleticism. Um, you know, he played basketball. He went to college as a basketball player and then switched to football uh, in, in midstream. He played, at, I think, four different schools, and two of them were, were football schools. Uh, but none of them, I think, were above maybe D2. So there's a lot of question about, you know, can he handle things, you know, competition at this level, and can he come along in football? He's young in football, you know. Can he come along and, and reach that ceiling? And I think he now realizes, hey, he's got an opportunity where even though he's only in year two – 
and he only has one start, he's one of the most experienced guys in that room outside of Kenny Moore, uh, and he fits what they want to do on defense here. I mean, when you look at the Gus Bradley kind of prototype, he's big, he's athletic, he's long, he's physical, all those things that Gus sees in a corner, it, Dallas Flowers is there. Now the question is, obviously we're undrafted for a reason, you know, can he get to the point as quickly as he's going to need to to be a starter this year in terms of his comfort level with, with this defense, with the league in general? Uh, but I think we've seen, even in shorts, he has the ability to make some plays. He did it the other day out there. He's done it a little bit on field, uh, but mostly right now as a kick returner. So he's just a really intriguing name. And he's obviously in a situation because of the Isaiah Rogers situation that nobody thought he would be in. But I think the the positive sign right now is definitely not shrinking from that. He doesn't seem overwhelmed by it. He just feels like this is a shot he's been waiting for, you know, pretty much since he started playing football and, you know, plans to take full advantage of it. We'll see how that one plays out. But he's a fun kid. He's a really confident kid and definitely a guy who probably we aren't talking about who may end up making some some splashes during this preseason. George, before we get out of here, I have to ask, because you talk so glowingly about your family, your daughter. How was Father's Day? It was outstanding. Got to spend the whole day with my daughter, which I don't think there's even a better way uh, imaginable than to spend Father's Day. So, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, and I hope you had a good Father's Day as well. I know you, you got around a little bit. I think you were up in back home in Illinois, so... Uh, you know, hopefully that went well for you too. Yeah, man. No real kids, just got the guy kids, you know, who who uh, keep me busy. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And like I said, George, thank you for coming on, man. I'll see you pretty soon. And uh, make sure you keep giving me life advice because I need it. I feel like uh, every time I talk to you all about kids, bills, adulting, um, it can never be enough. So I appreciate that. <laughs> No problem, man. Still learning myself. I mean, it's a never-ending process. (laughs) Anytime, man. Anytime. All right. Thanks, George. That was George Brimmer. Again, he covers the Colts for the Herald Bulletin and Anderson. Final hour of the Fan Midday Show on a Monday. Happy Juneteenth to you. Hope everybody had a wonderful Father's Day over the weekend, and thanks for spending your afternoon with us here on The Fan. With James Boyd, I'm Jimmy Cook, alongside Eddie Garrison as well, behind the ones and twos. We mentioned it. It's draft week. Everybody's hyped up for it. We'll have a number of different angles and pathways that we take between now and Thursday. That journey begins with Dustin Apirak. Covers the Pacers for the Athletic. Dustin, how are you on Monday? For Indy Star. For the Indy Star. That's I, we don't have a fine bucket. That's my fault. James, you go ahead and ask the first question. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna deflect and I'm gonna. Uh, Dustin, how are you? I apologize. I'm the Indy Star. <laughs> don't worry, Dustin. I'm gonna put him in timeout. <laughs> Appreciate it, James. Uh, athletic, you know, but but James is the guy there now, you know. So, but but thank you, thanks for having me on, guys. I do what I can, Dustin. But I will ask this because I know all the fans are asking you, who are the Pacers going to draft? What trades are they going to make? What's going to look like Thursday night? And no, I'm joking. I know you're going to have to answer a lot of these things soon enough. But um, how do you feel about where the team is and weighing? Oh, I'm sorry. Did he? I think I think think we dropped out for a second. Oh, I I I yelled at him too loud. I'm sorry. It's okay. We got him now. He's back. All right. I'm sorry, Dustin. You're back. I'm back. All right. Sorry about that. Happened there. I was uh, screaming about who are they going to pick? Who are they going to trade? He has a pitchfork. Tell us everything right now because I know that's what your mentions are looking like these days. I was in those shoes once. I don't envy you at all. Um, But how would you say that the Pacers are? are, I guess weighing just their options with that number seven pick. Well, I mean, it seems like they're just from putting together the tea leaves, but I mean, uh, it seems like they're considering all the options. And, and I think there, there are a vast number of them in terms of possible direction they could go. From the very beginning, I mean, it, it was kind of remarkable just how early in the process Kevin Pritchard was willing to tell us, like, I don't want to make all these picks. <laughs> like, I don't intend <laughs> to. I mean, even back in January, um, I remember really, it was really the first time I, I talked to him kind of a. Uh, you know, multi-reporter type setting was after, uh, you know, Turner's contract extension. And he said, you know, we're going to have five picks. I really don't want to make that many because if you've got that many young players, he said so they can kind of cannibalize themselves, especially when you've already got a young team to start with. And, mm-hmm. and you already saw even this season uh, just how Jalen Smith and Isaiah Jackson cut into each other's minutes once they decided that Smith wasn't going to quite make it as the starting power forward and move him into that backup five spot. I mean, you really saw each of those guys lose a lot of opportunities because they were both there playing that spot. And then he threw Daniel Tyson there trying to get some minutes for him um, 
when he came back from surgery in February, only ended up playing seven games. But I think they just wanted to prove, like, hey, this guy's still a useful player. If someone please take him off our hands, uh, you know, he'll be able to help you. We just got too many of these guys. So I think on just, they didn't want to exacerbate that problem by getting more guys. So they've been really open about saying, hey, we, we want to move some of these, and we're going to have make you know opportunities to move up. And the pitcher just said that, hey, got a lot of cap space and these draft assets. We want to do this to make a splash, and he's been pretty clear about that. Um, and now there's just, just the question of well, what can you do exactly? And you know, it seems like the price to move up to two or three to try to get Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller is very, very high. Um, and if, if it's as high as reported, I mean, if it's, you know, if, if the Pelicans are throwing around Zion Williamson from Scoot Henderson for, for the two for Charlotte, uh, the Pacers can't compete with that. There's, there's nobody that they would be willing to move that, that you know, commands that kind of attention. Um, and it seems like Portland wants a lot. It seems like they're also willing to, you know, maybe put Anthony Simons on the block. Um, but you're going to have to really make a big offer that makes Damian Lillard happy to get up to three. So there's a good chance they could be at seven. It seems like there's also some... Uh, you know, chatter out there about them trying to make a move for somebody like an OG Ananobi, maybe moving uh, that pick for them. But I mean, it's, I, I think they do still like the pick. They're interested in what else is out there. Um, you know, but, but I think they have a couple uh, of several options that could be on the board um, that could be really helpful. I mean, I think it just comes down to even still at this point, I, I wouldn't take All-Star Thompson's name off the table yet, but I would say it's Cam Whitmore, All-Star Thompson, uh, Jarris Walker, Taylor Hendricks, those are the four guys that it could be depending on who's on the board. Um, and I think those are all interesting, uh, interesting players that, that, that do fit their needs. So I'll ask you an easy one. What did it take to get Victor Womanyamba <laughs> Does it involve stock in the Pacers, stock in the, you know, the Mad Ants, or moving to the Noblesville? Do you just take them and move them to San Antonio? Like, what do we I, I have to do? I think it takes Apple at like a dollar a share, James. I feel, I feel yeah, like you're going to... Like, I mean, maybe you could sell... Yeah, maybe you could sell them Apple, the whole thing. That's about it. Yeah, like if, if you could purchase that and give it to them, then maybe you'd have it. I'm not That's giving up hope. It. I'm not giving... Wimby to Indy, hashtag it. James has it. a bunch of t-shirts in his <laughs> apartment nobody, he's trying to sell it out. In this town, nobody in this town, maybe nobody in this country has more optimism than James Boyd, so... There you go. Like, there you like, go. I mean, <laughs> this ain't happening. I'm just gonna say that. There's no. They could trade the whole team. They could trade. They could reincarnate or or bring back to their prime level every great player the Pacers have ever had, and they still couldn't get Victor Wembanyama. There's no chance. Hey, optimism has to be quelled at some point, Dustin. We appreciate you you wearing that badge. Justin Apirak with us covers the Pacers for the Indianapolis Star. The timeline on these potential trades, Dustin, at least for the second round picks, at least from what's been perceived and reported, was closer to draft day. We're obviously knocking on that door right now, but maybe day before or day of. Is there a similar sense in your mind with the number seven pick being valued as a trade asset to get a wing starting caliber guy now? that that would also be a day before or day of draft type of trade? Or is that something that if the right offer comes across the board, say, tomorrow, they'd be willing to spring that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if somebody would be willing to do it, you know, it, it, I guess it comes down to this. If the Pacers like that person enough, um, I mean, I, you know, would you wait just to see if, you know, if, I, I guess the only reason you would wait is if you think there's a chance, like if you value somebody, if, if they really like Cam Whitmore maybe um, and feel like they don't want to make that deal until they know Cam Whitmore's off the board, um, you know, I mean, that, that's just, that, I think that's the only name that it would, it could be, I guess. I mean, like, uh, you know, then, uh, then maybe you would wait. But I think if, if Toronto said tomorrow, you know, okay, uh, we're willing to give up Ananobi for the seven. Um, it basically, if they like Ananobi that much, I don't know why they'd wait. You know, I mean, like, you know, obviously, Wimbanyama's going to be off the board. Scoot Henderson's going to be off the board. Don't you, know. you say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're really trying to believe that, like, San Antonio's just going to forget the draft. I mean, no, I figured I out one. I figured out one. If the Pacers <laughs> hold the Spurs hostage, then maybe perhaps. I mean, look, we have resources, okay? You go out there and you intercept his plane. You do whatever you have to to bring him to Indianapolis. You show, you take him to St. Elmo. You know, Harry and Izzy's, and you and you say, "Hey, this is how it is in America. How we treat ours here in Indy. We got you covered, big dog." <laughs> hey, you have a great free agency proposal in about five, six, seven years, whenever that happens. You can be the, you, man. the head of that committee <laughs> to, to, to build off of that avenue, though, for trades, Dustin. Whether it's OG and Anobi or not, I don't know that it's just 
I th- you're not saying this clearly. No one's saying this, but it's not the seventh pick straight up. There's likely more that's involved in that deal. I know you highlighted it over at the Indy Star of most movable to least movable pieces, regardless of if it's OG, but another team where you find that starting caliber wing, who's most likely to be enticing enough to sweeten a pot in a deal that involves moving seven? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously I think Turner is the most uh, enticing that option that's it's only it's even even remotely movable. I mean, I wouldn't jump if I was them to move him. I wouldn't move him unless I knew I had uh, a, you know basically a, a fallback option at center and and a starter quality fallback option at center um, or it's a direction somebody else that you could go pick up and that would have to I think involve another deal at the end of the day. Um, so I mean, I would set a really really high bar to move Miles Turner uh, because I mean I, I think obviously he's coming off his, his best year of his career. I, I think. He has a chance to get even better given a uh, summer where he's not dealing with as much uh, in terms of trade rumors. I mean, all all of last year was just a question of when he was getting moved, and it didn't end up happening. I think he's really excited for a year where he doesn't have to deal with that. So I would say, like, you should only move him if you get something really, you know, really, really significant. Um, So obviously the next option down then is Buddy Heald. Um, And I think obviously he's pretty movable because he's got an expiring contract, um, you know, and I don't know that they want to pay. You know, I mean, he's he's making uh, right around twenty million a year right now. Do they want to go uh, add to that or even match that uh, going forward? I don't know. I, I you know, I, I don't think they're sure about it, especially because they, you know, you 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 know what you're getting from Buddy. You're going to get an elite floor spacer, a guy who is shooting as well as high as at that as super high clip for a high volume guy. Um, you know, so. He's going to be able to space the floor for anybody, and that makes him valuable for a lot of different places. I mean, just from a purely basketball standpoint, he can just step in for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, if you've got a little more cap room, you might be able to pay him. Uh, so he might be really valuable for someplace, somebody else. I mean, obviously, I think that's the one that's enticing um, and doable um, for a lot of people. So I, I think that that's the next. The next guy you move after that, I think it's hard to get a lot of return uh, for whoever they might go after. It's just it's just a question of what you can, the sort of deals you can involve yourself in, and they're just not the same uh, as if you're if you're not willing to move him. Dustin, I know a lot of talk is about what pieces the Pacers could add this week, obviously, but what do you mm. think of the way Tyrese Halliburton has shouldered that superstar? star player role especially this offseason because from what i've seen on social media he hasn't really left indy he's been it seems mm-hmm. like at every voluntary workout which isn't always the case it seems like he's really taking that by the throat yeah he really is i mean obviously you got to know him a little bit covered i mean he's just he's meant for this part of it i mean he's almost as good as he is a basketball player he just really fits this sort of team ambassador role and he, I mean, like he's he's a bit of a geek when it comes to this stuff. Like he, he really likes thinking about putting teams together. He's he's a really just such a connector by uh, nature. He likes being able to play with really good players. Uh, he he knows basically that his style of play is basically designed to make everybody else have a good time playing with him. Um, so he looks out and says, "Okay, who who fits with me? Who fits with us?" Uh, but I, I think he really likes that kind of stuff. I think he really likes to get into those kind of debates. About you know um, you know who would fit here, who would be better, who would you trade for, who do you like? Uh, and I think he really likes that piece of it. I think he, he really likes having the responsibility, you know, basically being um, just being involved in that way. And he's at the all these workouts. He's sitting next to Larry Bird. He's sitting next to Kevin Pritchard. He's uh, sitting next to you know coaches, GMs, everything. He loves those conversations, and they really like talking with him too. Uh, I think you know Pritchard says you know I always kind of uh, learn something about that, and he said anything that we do is going to be run through. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton. I'm not, I'm not going to make any deal that he doesn't have a say in. He's, I'm going to make the ultimate decision. I don't want it to be a deal where it's like it's it's entirely his team because that's my job. It's not his. Um, but he's going to take his input um, and say, okay, if, if Tyrese really doesn't think this is going to work, you know, I'm not going to try to move it. So it's, it's, it's been fun to watch a such a young star grow into that role so quickly and so naturally. Uh, That's really one of the most fun part of covering this team right now is seeing him mature into that as a guy who's just 23 years old. Have the questions shifted yet towards the front office of the balancing act that takes place when you're trying to build this roster the right way and you want to address need, but perhaps there's a best available that 
is too good to pass up with where they're at at seven if somebody falls. Has that internal dialogue taken place yet, knowing that they do have such a young core at some key positions right now with Tyrese Halliburton, with Benedict Matherin? Are they at a crossroads at all with, depending on how the board goes, they know the decision they're going to have to make of best available versus key need? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they have. Um, and I know I think... Um... Just, you know, obviously they're not going to share all of that with right. us, but I mean, I think that's kind of a, like it, it's a very clear when you look at the four guys who could be available. Um, you know, th- depending on who's it, basically, you're going to have two of them around uh, the way it's, it should shake out. Um, and so, basically, if there's kind of two guys on sort of each side of that ledger, I guess is the best way to put it. I mean, the guys who most clearly fit from a positional standpoint would be Walker and Hendricks because they're, you know, defensive oriented uh, forwards who have some offensive skill, but that like you're looking at them saying, well, those guys are going to be good defenders and you could trust that. Um, and so are they ever going to be all-star caliber? Are they ever going to be the type of players that, that uh, people look at it in that way? Maybe not. But you can look at them and say, okay, they, they are already pretty advanced when it comes to understanding rotation, being willing and able as sort of bigger guys, six eight, six nine guys to go guard a point guard if they have to, you know, switch onto them, be comfortable in that position, and also be shot blockers and, and also have a sense of what their offensive role is. So they they are the two guys that, that would be the, the fit answer, where Cam Whitmore and Oscar Thompson would be the high ceiling answer, uh, if if one of those two guys happens to be around. Now it's possible that Whitmore and Thompson are both off the table and then you're just in a position deciding which one you want between Walker uh, and Hendricks, but you know it, it, you could it could be a one or the other type of deal if if someone leaves. You know, I would think Detroit will probably take Whitmore, and, and uh, there's a chance I think that Orlando takes Thompson, and maybe that was the reason why you know also didn't end up coming to his Pacers workout. So it might end up being a kind of an easy decision between two guys who are kind of the fit answer anyway. But if one of those two is on the board, you know that that's the interesting question. And Pitcher did say when we talked to him after the lottery that, that he said I really think you have to have a guy with a high ceiling at seven because you got to remember, I mean. They haven't had, you know, they, they always had Matherin last year at six, but prior to that, hadn't had a, a pick in the top nine since 1989 in George McLeod. I mean, that's a long time. Um, so you really kind of have to nail this one. I think that's how Pritchard looks at it is you don't want to just get a guy at seven. You, you want somebody that can be a franchise cornerstone, but also somebody that you can project being uh, a really high-level star. And so I think that's going to definitely uh, factor in to their decisions, and and so if if they get enamored by the idea of ceiling, uh, and Whitmore and Tom, or, or Thompson are on the board, then you can see them make that decision uh, over what I would think from a fit standpoint is a safer pick in either Walker or Hendricks. Dustin, how should the Pacers feel about Asar Thompson withdrawing from his pre-draft workout, which was previously scheduled? They announced it from their team account, and then I think you and a few others. I was like, wait a second, what's going on? Like, why does he want to come yeah. work out in Indy? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the the first sort of um, theory that hit Twitter as soon as that happened, obviously they, they, they did announce it, they had to pull it back, and then had to kind of explain to us, like, well, yeah, he, you know, withdrew. Um, and so, you know, the, the first theory was, well, he must have got a promise, you know, that uh, from somebody in the top six, obviously he'd be a good fit at six to Orlando. Um, you know, so I, I think there there is a possibility that somebody in the top six said, hey, don't bother going to Indiana. Um, because, you know, I, and I don't know if maybe he thinks he's uh, – it, it's certainly also – Possible. I mean, I don't know if this is good or, or, or likely, but you know, if he thinks he's a better fit to play in some place like Washington, um, you know, maybe he was like, okay, I'd, I'd rather not get picked at seven. I'd rather stick around for another pick. I mean, I guess I suppose that's possible, but you know, um, it would seem a more likely explanation that, that he's safe to go someplace else uh, and safe to go someplace like Orlando in the top six. So we'll see if that's the case. I mean, if you're the Pacers, you can't be happy about it because it, it makes you look like you got a little bit of egg on your face. Um, and it's like, okay, why, you know, why not just come out and work out? Um, so don't have an answer from his camp as to why that happened uh, exactly. So, you know, I guess we'll obviously see on draft day whether it was a bad idea or not. Uh, you know, they certainly have a lot of tape to evaluate. You know, these workouts aren't the only way you can decide what kind of player – uh, you want, and they can certainly, you know, decide if he's still on the board that they do like him. Um, but yeah, so I, it, but it definitely, it, it doesn't look great for anybody when that happens right after you announce it. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, and I always find it interesting as well when they have the individual workouts. 
I'm like, how much you learn about a guy when he's in the gym by himself? You know, how much do you compete and things like that? It's funny we we preach these things and coaches preach these things all you know year long, and then you get to the draft weekend and everything's so meticulous, which is smart. I mean, it's a lot of money involved with these decisions, but. I guess that's my roundabout way of saying I forgive you for uh, maybe not knowing because I, I I know for a fact that you know th- mm. there's gonna be a lot of nuance when it comes to these you know yeah. one side saying mm. one thing the other side saying another but I will say this though do you think that would deter them just from completely drafting a guy like that I mean considering he is extremely talented maybe he comes from an obscure league you know maybe mm. not as established as the G League night for example but. Would it be that much of a factor, or is it just a, you know looking at okay if he drops, is it still you know in play? I mean, I think it's one of those things where I think it, it, it raises the bar to how much you have to like him. I, I think one of the biggest things that they want to see in these workouts uh, is how you take instruction. I think that's really one of the most important things they try to take because they can see on film what you can do, mm-hmm. what you're physically capable of. But I think one of the biggest things they want to see is like if I tell you I want to want to see you do this different. What's that look like? How quick do you process that? You know, how quick do you process that and, and adapt? Because so much about this league is adaptability. It's figuring out, okay, what what happens when you find out that your your go to move doesn't work, and that you've got to do something else with this guy, or, or, or you've got to switch and, and do something else to, to fit in the team dynamic. And I know Rick, Rick Carlisle loves these things. I mean, like, oh yeah, he's a teacher at heart. Yeah, God, is he ever? I mean, and, and it's just like he, he's he's doing this for guys that they, they'll never pick. You know, uh, I mean, he loves the idea of there are guys that they might not take at all. Like, I, I think Rick is totally happy if he tells a guy, hey, here's what you should do to fix your shot. They don't pick him, but he gets to be a better shooter. Rick Carlisle will be happy about that. Like, he'll, he'll be glad he did it. He won't wish that he didn't because it might burn him 10 years down the road when that guy sticks a three in his face. Rick's okay with that. Like, Rick likes the idea of teaching guys and have, having them get better. So he loves this. And so he would love to, I think, get a hold of somebody like Osara and, and teach him and say, hey, work on this thing. And, and you see, I think, even more of it um, every time when, when it's been individual workouts, when it's been the top, you know, the top guys. Uh, he really enjoys that, and so, so you really see it in him. And I think it's sort of, it, you know, it, I'm, I'm sure he's personally disappointed to not get a, get a chance to see this guy work up close, and then and then get to see that piece of it. But obviously, they really, really like him. They really, really believe in him, and they think it's the right fit. Um, I mean, I don't think that they would just not take him on principle, um, but I think it, it costs them something because I, I think they they would like to see a little bit more because you are trying to scale what you see from this guy because it's like okay where does this where do they really fit where does overtime elite fit in terms of you know quality of competition you know how much better were they from everybody else they were playing against you know him and i'm in um you know like where where do you really put these guys you know the athleticism athleticism is there but what does it look like up close you know i think they would have liked to have seen that to, to feel a little bit safer about the pick being there um so it's something it doesn't necessarily mean it's everything if they like them enough if they really think the ceiling is too high to pass up um you know i'm not going to sit here and tell you that there's zero percent chance that they take also thompson if he's on the board um but it certainly changes that dynamic significantly Dustin Dupirak with us covers the Pacers for the Indy Star. Dustin, last thing on my end, I know it doesn't necessarily concern the Pacers' face value, but it could potentially have ripple effects throughout the league as we get closer and closer to draft night and what could be a potential trade fest, at least here in Indy. But your takeaways from the two big news elements of the last 24 hours, which is Bradley Beal likely heading to Phoenix and Draymond Green opting out of his contract via his player option that he had and what might unfold out west with Golden State. Yeah, I mean, it definitely shakes some things up. I mean, I, I said I don't necessarily see the direct Pacers connection yet, um, but obviously the the bidding for you know Draymond is going to be interesting. Obviously, you can't roll Golden State out of that. You can't look at it and say you know there's just a good possibility he just gets more money out of them uh, and sticks around. Um, but you know, certainly if you're going to see okay, what what kind of uh, you know what is that going to take? Who might get involved in that? Does that you know, take certain teams out of different players. I mean, I think it's obviously interesting to see Washington, uh, you know, kind of getting more into a, you know, sell situation, uh, asking the question, okay, what are they going to, you know, are they going to try to, um, I'm not, I can't remember if Porzingis is a club or a player option, you know, so or see what happens with him. So there's definitely going to be, um, 
there's definitely going to be some some domino effect there, but obviously interesting on Phoenix's part. You know, they're they're going to have to make some moves as well to kind of make things work from a salary standpoint. Um, so that could put a couple, uh, you know, players on the market that, that could be gettable for relatively cheap, just because they've got to clear, clear stuff out uh, to be able to keep all of those stars together. It's going to be a fascinating team to see, you know, Beal and Booker and, and Durant together, and how long they try to make that work, and and you know how, how they go about sharing one basketball uh, is going to be intriguing for sure. But, don't forget former uh, Pacer DeAndre Aiden. Don't forget <laughs> <laughs> he's a Pacer for like two hours. Long and illustrious. What a great time uh, that was. <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing. I mean, like I, you know, obviously, I think there's that increases the possibility that Aiden's on the move. Uh, and so, how does that um, shake things up? Well, you know, what does that do to, to various dynamics? Uh, you know. Like you wouldn't think the Pacers would try to get it, be interested in that again, uh, and try to mess around with that. I mean, I think, I think at this point Turner's better than Aiden. I don't know if I would have said the same thing a year ago. Um, so I, I, w- I would think it would not be smart for them to try to get themselves in that sweepstakes because I think they've got a better player. Um, but he's still a you know far better than serviceable center. And if you're trying to move around roster, then you might you know if if they were to make a big deal that involves Miles, they might be able to backfill with Aiden. Um, so that's several steps down the road. Um, you know, they would have to do something else first, I think, uh, before they even think about doing that. But, you know, it's something to keep in, your, in the back of your mind as, as an option they might pursue if they want to go really big uh, and, and involve themselves in a deal that might move Turner. He's Dustin Apirak, covers the Pacers for the Indy Star. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at Dustin Apirak as we get closer and closer to the draft. He'll have us all the coverage we need as we unfold at the countdown to Thursday night. Dustin, thanks so much for making time for us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Dustin DePirac. Still here in the DriveHubler.com studio, alongside Eddie Garris and Jimmy Cook, I'm James Boyd. You're listening to 107.5 The Fan, the midday show here on Juneteenth. We have Zach Berman. He covers the Eagles for the Athletics, so technically he's my co-worker, even though I don't see him very often. <laughs> he does a great job over there in Philly. Zach, how you doing, my man? Hey, I'm doing great, James. Thanks for having me on your show. Appreciate it. Obviously, we have a lot of connections between the two teams because of Shane Steichen, Gardner Minshew. Our start with the former, Shane Steichen. We've got a chance to know him over the last few months. Pretty straightforward. Was that the same interaction that you had in Philly where it was literally all ball? People say that as a cliche, but Zach, it really feels like it is football and family for him. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's an apt description. The uh, the obsession with with football, with offensive football, that that comes through in, in any conversation with him. He's the kind of uh, coach who you know is always thinking of different ideas, is contacting players, and and you know thinking of of, of different ways to do the same thing, basically. Uh, so that's 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 probably accurate. As as you get to know him, you'll see a little more personality and. And you know the chance to talk to him more. There's uh, he's he's thoughtful about a lot of different concepts in football, but 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 certainly he is all ball. That's a fair description. Yeah, I'm waiting for him to do a TikTok dance with me or something like that. Don't know if it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't bet on that one. <laughs> but jokes aside, one of the things he was obviously brought into Indianapolis to do is help develop the rookie quarterback, which we now know is Anthony Richardson. What did you see from him and his role in helping Jalen Hurts take that leap that he took last year? I know a lot gets made or talked about with last year, but maybe we can go back to 2021 and how he just helped Jalen feel comfortable being the starter and maybe not having the skill set just just yet to still be successful. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll preface this by saying it's it's not just Shane, right? You know, Nick Sirianni, the absolutely old friend in Indianapolis, played a big part in Brian Johnson. The quarterback's coach, now the offensive coordinator, played a big part in it. Um, but Shane being the offensive coordinator and the play caller, in terms of Jalen's development, it was huge. And uh, from Jalen's perspective, the, the continuity in play caller was very important for him going from his first year as a starter with that group to the second. He hadn't had the same play caller, the same offensive staff really since uh, he was in high school with his dad. So – you start there. But as, as far as Shane, what, what really jumps out and what's impressive is that he, he called the offense for the quarterback. And I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Too often in football, you'll see 
coaches try to get the quarterback to fit into their scheme. And they put together an offense that made sense for Jalen, that accentuated what Jalen did well, accentuated what the players around him did well. And that's what you want. You want a coach who looks at his players and maximizes the players instead of saying to the players, this is my offense, this is how you have to do it. And if you look at at Shane's track record, I mean, he had Philip Rivers, he had Justin Herbert, he had uh, Jalen Hurts, all different styles of quarterbacks, different experiences in their career, and he was able to maximize them in different ways. Zach, when you look at the team building and roster construction aspect of Philadelphia, one of the things that I've looked at when I look at the Colts is as they build this thing out with Anthony Richardson, at some point you would like to obtain a every-down, do-it-all, number-one wide receiver. Michael Pittman Jr. might feel he is that. He's going to have another opportunity to prove that this season. But for the Eagles, if we turn the clock back to the 2022 draft, that moment to trade for A.J. Brown and find an opportunity to bring in a stud-wide receiver can be viewed in some ways as a major turning point for this offense, along with the development of Hurts. I know I'm making you go back in the vault a little bit here, but when did it become clear that that was a move that the Eagles, much like the Bills with Diggs before them, needed to do to put their offense over the top with a young quarterback like Hurts? Yeah, good question. And 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 I would actually say it was back-to-back years. It was getting Devontae mm-hmm. Smith in, in 2021 and trading for A.J. in 2022. And there's a few layers to that. Uh, the first being the Eagles were really struggling at, at that position and spent resources trying to solve it when Carson Wentz was here. They drafted Jalen Rager in the first round, drafted J.J. Ortega-Whiteside in the second round. They paid Deshaun Jackson. I mean, they had done a handful of things over you know a three-year period and they couldn't quite get it right. And I think a lot of times what, what, what teams do is they compound their mistake. You know, they're, they're afraid. They're, they're so committed to the player that they drafted that they don't want to draft over them. They kind of want to let that talent fail first. And the Eagles, to their credit, were proactive. They saw it wasn't working with Rager. They saw it wasn't working with Artega Whiteside. They weren't afraid to spend a first-round pick on a wide receiver three years in a row, which is what they did when they drafted Devontae and they drafted A.J. Brown. Um, but then to also answer your question, I think they they saw that, look, they weren't entirely sold on Jalen Hurts two years ago. But I, I think what they did see was that if, if Jalen's going to maximize his potential, they needed to give him what it took to, to see who he was, right? They can't look back at Hurts' tenure and say they didn't do enough to give him players. And then A.J. Brown, when he became available and they had the benefit of having a quarterback on a, on a rookie contract so they could pay him, they had draft assets to go trade for him, and it helped that A.J. Brown was good friends with Jalen Hurts. But I, I think that was the key, that they knew in order to maximize the quarterback, they needed to get the offensive weapons. Zach, you talked about it a little bit earlier, You know, giving credit where credit is due. Nick Sirianni deserves a lot of credit, I think. What what he did in Indy and obviously what he carried over to Philadelphia, how have you seen him grow in his role and maybe that hunger and desire to sustain it? You know, I, I think that last year was obviously an amazing season, but that final step, even Shane Steichen talked about a little bit in his introductory press conference, where there's that bad taste of not getting the job done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, they were they were on the doorstep there, right? They had the lead in the second half of the, of, of the Super Bowl. I, I think where – I mean, Nick has, has grown in, in so many ways. But the key with him is his ability to connect with players, his ability to, to kind of foster an environment in, in an atmosphere where they enjoy coming to work, they, 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 they believe in each other. I mean, it, it's, it's, it sounds kind of like high school stuff when you say it that way. But I think that's, that's a big part of, of what Nick does well. And, you know, I, I, I imagine you guys saw that in Indianapolis where the energy that he has every day, the enthusiasm that he has, his ability to get the team to connect, um, that's, that's, that's not by accident. That's, that's who he is. So in order for them to take the next step here, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to win in this league. And, you know, the reason why teams don't, don't often get back to the Super Bowl after after losing it is, is 
is not necessarily because of a Super Bowl hangover, but there's so many factors that have to go your way between injuries. You know, be you know the schedule gets harder. There's a lot of variables there, and this is going to be a huge test for Nick. Zach Berman with us covers the Philadelphia Eagles for the Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at zberm. Zach, are you at all surprised, because we were initially, but we're not now, but surprised by Gardner Minshew's ability, regardless of where he is or where he ends up, to have such that easygoing, calm, cool, collective manner that would allow him, like he did with Jalen Hurts last year, like he could potentially do with Anthony Richardson here, to have such a cohesive, close-knit quarterback room while also knowing that here in Indy, he does have a shot to be the starter week one? Yeah, I mean, Garner's a competitive guy. You know, I think that's that's the first place you got to start. I mean, if you go back to the 2021 season, uh, he, he uh, you know, he enters the lineup for Hurts when Hurts is injured. The Eagles win a game against the Jets. And, and Garner goes to Nick Sirianni's office and asks what he needs to do to be the starting quarterback. <laughs> and and Nick's kind of like, hey, hey, you know, that that job's not open right now, right? <laughs> um, but But that's... That's the way Gardner's wired, and uh, you know he the 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 calmness, the you know the the uh, cool personality, if you will. That's that's definitely present. But he's a he's a competitive guy. I, I mean, I don't know if you've spoken to him about this yet, but you can ask him about when he was having a shooting contest with Nick Sirianni when Sirianni was with the Colts, and he was he was there on a, on a uh, pre-draft visit. Uh, so. The, the thing about Gardner is I, I, I think he understands the role that he probably signed up for. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people understood that the Colts were looking for a quarterback. But he's, in my opinion, he's like a bridge quarterback in the NFL. He's someone who can win a few games for you if you need him to, but he's not necessarily your, your face of the franchise guy. And I think it was a, a good signing, and there's continuity there in terms of the scheme that he can help out with. Zach, we were going through uh, Gardner's rookie season stats not too long ago. 21 touchdowns, six interceptions, 6-6 six six as a starter in Jacksonville. Could you imagine what this fan base in Indy would do if Anthony Richardson did that with Shane Steichen? Oh, my goodness. I feel like I would be getting, like, hashtag MVP uh, things in my mentions. But uh, um, kind of to pivot away from that a little bit to the rest of the offseason, I know we're going to enjoy this break now and – my God, Zach, did I not realize how much the NFL is on all the time. Like, my goodness, I am learning as I get into this more and more. But um, when we get to those joint practices, what can we expect? Because, you know, Shane was basically saying that's something they do in Philly often. But for Indiana, I mean, Indianapolis, this has been, I believe, their first time in team history where they've had two joint practices in one offseason. Yeah, it's a good question because if, if Shane operates the way they did in Philly, and I'm sorry to tell this to your to your listeners and your fans, that's that's gonna be their preseason game basically. Um, they're gonna use the joint practice to play their starters to 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 really get the rest that those starters need in a controlled setting, and then they won't play them in the preseason game. Now that uh, perhaps Shane operates differently, but but that's the way Philly's done it the past two years where, where they said in the joint practices, they can use that to really, to really get the work for the ones and the twos. And then the preseason game was for mainly the down the roster players. And the Eagles viewed it as, as significant in terms of their preseason, in terms of their preseason development and practices. So uh, I hate to say that for the fans, but when you tune in to the Eagles Colts preseason game, I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't starters on the field. Zach, I'm partial to the Kelsey brothers. I know that Jalen Hurts had mentioned that he his biggest takeaway, at least from the early goings of, of mandatory mini camp and and the early goings of OTAs, was good to have Kelsey back and he's ready to roll. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, Jason Kelsey's a he's an Eagles Hall of Famer, potentially a Pro Football Hall of Famer, and each each year he kind of takes time to figure out if he's going to come back or not. But uh, I, I think the way the last season ended. He didn't want to go out that way, number one, and I, I think he still feels healthy enough to play, and most importantly, he wants to play. The way he always frames it, and actually Howard Mudd, who, you, who your listeners know well, um, you know, he's, 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 he's learned from Howard Mudd. He's learned from offensive line coach Jeff Stoutland. They all say that, you know, when, when, you, when you don't want to play, you'll know. And he said he'll always want to play. And he'll say, and 
And, and Stoutland tells him, no, there will be a day when you wake up and you're like, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, and Kelsey said that that day hasn't come. So he, he's back, and that's critical for the Eagles. Last one from me, Zach. I find Devontae Smith fascinating, not only because he's a great player, but because of his build. What, has he ever like talked about why he is able to – play this game at the highest level and maybe not be built like receivers because he's, I mean, still, I mean, you know, he works out and does things like that, but he's just a naturally skinny dude. And it seems like whenever he gets hit, he pops up, isn't afraid of anything, catches everything. So have you had discussions with him of just about how he goes about taking care of his body and being able to play at that size and play well? Yeah, that's a good question because he says he plays big, right? I mean, even though that's, even though he's, he's, he's not listed, at that, it's 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 just he it's it's kind of the way he he uh, is his his body's composed is that he can eat what he wants, he can work out how he wants, and he doesn't really add significant amount of weight. But I think with him, the big thing you know people pay attention to the weight, and I and I and I I, I get that. But if you look at the length that he has, um, that's that's huge for a wide receiver. He's able to have the agility of a small guy. Right, because he is he is lean, but his length uh, allows him to really extend um, on you know some of those high point passes, and it's it, it's not something that, that that you would necessarily know by looking at him, but then when you see how long his arms are, how big his hands are, that's that's really been advantageous for him. Yeah, he's a special player. I look at him, and I'm like, man, that guy's made of vibranium. Uh, so <laughs> it's just cool to see. But, Zach, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, enjoy the rest of hopefully your day off today, and we'll see you down the road here soon. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Again, that is Zach Berman, my coworker at The Athletic. Covers the Philadelphia Eagles. You can follow him on Twitter at ZBerm.